turn over to Matthew chapter 6. And read a couple of lines here from the outline of prayer that Christ gave to the disciples. I find a couple of them, all of them really very interesting, but a couple of them especially interesting. Here in, just at verse 10, Christ says we should pray therefore, and in verse 9 says, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does any one of us doubt that either of these items won't happen? That God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Well, of course not. We don't doubt those words. In Christ, in Matthew chapter 24, 14, gives us a very definitive assurance that the gospel will be preached, the end will come, and pursuant to that we do know the kingdom will be set up, and God, and Jesus Christ, will institute worldwide peace. It will take a bit of time, but he will bring that to pass. Elsewhere in Scripture, We're informed of God's Spirit. Let's turn over just a couple of pages to chapter 10. Chapter 10 of Matthew, verses 29 and 30. Christ here talks about the power of God and what God knows about each and every one of us. Just one example. Verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. God is able to keep track of every piece of his and part of his creation. That a sparrow does not fall without him knowing about it. And in verse 30, But the very hairs of your head... Are all numbered. Now, while we joke about that, it is a reality. That is a moving target. Now, every time uh, some of us older people brush our hair, we, we lose a few. But God is able to number the hairs on our head, so the kind of power He has is obviously beyond resistance. Let's turn back to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, and we'll read just the first two verses. And in in doing so, recall the story in the first 41 chapters of what Job has experienced, the lesson he has been forced to learn. In verse verse 1 of chapter 42, Job answered the, the Eternal and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So if we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
for God's will to be done, your will to be done, your kingdom come. It is going to happen. We even find a, a, a significant scripture over in Ezekiel 36. One of the locations where Christ, or the God of the Old Testament, does guarantee his prophecies with his own word. In verses 35 and 36 of Ezekiel 36, it says, So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And, of course, he's talking about a millennial setting. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Eternal, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Eternal, have spoken it, and I will do it. Guaranteeing that all the prophecies associated with the return of Christ The setting up of God's kingdom will, in fact, come to pass. So, back in Matthew chapter 6, in the prayer that Christ outlined, or the outline for the prayer that he gave us, he was not hinting that somehow the kingdom might fail, or his will might not be done, or the reality of those things, the guarantee of those things are somehow dependent on some outside force, or in this particular case, dependent on our prayers. He's not asking us to pray so that it will be accomplished, but rather what is he, what is he telling us in this expression? It's an expression, should be an expression of our great desire for those things to become reality. And I think he is also telling us of a major part that all of us have in making that reality come to pass as he plans. So this afternoon I'd like to review a couple of things. One, the greatness of our calling, and then the subsequent responsibility with which we are charged in doing the work of God by that calling. We'll review the greatness of our calling and the responsibility that it gives us. So first let's talk about the special part of our calling. Now all of us know these things, but I do think it's well worth us taking the time to review just how, and I won't use the word unique because unique means one of a kind, but how nearly unique it is for us to be part of the begotten family of God. There are so few of us. Over in John 6.44, a scripture that we cite quite often that helps us understand that we're not here by accident, some sort of cosmic fiat, So we are here by distinct power being used to bring us to this point. John 6, chapter 40, or verse 44. And Christ says, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
We are not present because of some sort of accident. We are very carefully selected, chosen. Many of us have to make sacrifices to be here. And God helped us come through those, those, script, those sacrifices. And he gave us understanding that only he can give us. He can, he can pick us out of the crowd, if you will. And many scriptures point to just how special we are. Let's turn over to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter writing to many of the dispersed Jews that up through Asia Minor and elsewhere that have been called and part of the church. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A chosen generation. A holy nation. And I hope we do realize that we are special. We're special in God's eyes. Now, there aren't very many of us. And we have all heard ratios given that point out how few of us there are compared to the billions of people there are in the world. Not many of us. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, One of the reasons there aren't very many of us, God is careful about those he chooses, those he knows can make it into his kingdom if we will rely on him to do so. He says here in verse 14, Christ is is preaching, says, because narrow is the gate and difficult, and the margin says confined. It's very difficult and confined is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And those that have a chance to find it, if you will, have to be called first by God. And again, God is careful about those he chooses because he wants to be sure that we can do it with his help. There may be some that God is not calling because it's not the right time. And if we're here, if we're present, we're part of the family of God in this age, it is the right time for us to be called. But there are not very many of us that have that privilege in this age. Elsewhere, we're referred to as a little flock. A little flock. Just a few in number are called of God. So we are very special in Christ's and God's eyes. So God calls us. He says the, the Father has to pick us out. And if you will, it turns us over to Jesus Christ. And Christ works with us. He cares for us. He sees to it that we're taught, and he encourages us and helps us through the Bible, through the word we have, through the instruction we receive, the, the material we read, and through our prayers and our supplications, we grow. We grow to become more like Jesus Christ because he is the head of the church. 
He's over the entire church. He guides what takes place, and he works with each and every member of the church to bring them into his kingdom, to bring that into a reality, each and every one of us. Then in Matthew chapter 11, if you would, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 11. And here are a couple of verses that I think are very revealing, but also very encouraging. Verses 25 through 27 of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is praying. He says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Again, a reminder that we are not here because of our talents, because of our worthiness, but we're here because of God's mercy. And he says, Even so, Father, so it seemed good in your sight. And Christ says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one, which is in italics, but of those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Which tells us there that the Father selects us, turns our care and teaching and training and guidance and protection over to Jesus Christ, and Christ then works with us to reveal to us the Father, his nature, his character, his righteousness. We begin to understand what the Father is like. And, of course, by doing this, he, in essence, reveals himself, does he not? Because he tells us that he and the Father are one. They're one in character. They're one in righteousness. They're one in purpose. They have the exact same nature. And so when Christ reveals to us the nature of the Father, he is in if you will, also revealing himself. And so we are to take on those traits, those characteristics of the Father and Jesus Christ and becoming like both of them. We've been given knowledge that very few have ever received. Very, very few by comparison. Now, Mr. Rod McNair, last week in his sermon on the Trinity, on refuting the Trinity, and he pointed out that the sermon itself was not entirely about the nature of God. It was uh, some detail about the nature of God. And we began to see some of what it's like to be part of the God family, the kinds of things we are to try to do and become like him and refuting that particular doctrine that the vast majority of Christianity believes. It's almost it would, uh, universal, except there are a few of us that don't accept it. And it seems when you, when you really hear the sermon and you hear the scriptures and go through what the Bible says, it seems rather simple if we carefully, carefully examine God's word that God is not 
a trinity. He is not three in one and one in three, three aspects of one being. He, he's not that. It's a special understanding that we have that the family of God currently consists of two distinct and very separate beings that are one in purpose and character and nature. We understand that. And again, if you the sermon that he goes through that Mr. McNair pointed out, he says, I realize I'm preaching to the choir. There are so few people in the world that understand that. And even though there are only two members of that family at, at this present time, there are thousands of begotten individuals that are laying in their graves waiting for a resurrection to become part of that family. We have this special understanding that we can become part of that family. That's a pretty awesome privilege that carries a lot of responsibility, a lot of duty, if you will. So God has called us. He turned us over to Jesus Christ, and we have been given an opportunity for salvation. And along with that comes a huge job, if you will. So let's turn back just a bit here to Matthew chapter 10. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Because here he gives the disciples a task, one of the first ones they're given. In chapter 10, verse 1 of Matthew And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, they had not yet been given God's Holy Spirit, which was not to come until the day of Pentecost, some years hence. But he gave them power to do this. They were being sent to go carry out these, this particular task. And, of course, so the names of the twelve are these, and he lists the names of the twelve, twelve disciples. And then in verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we find with our understanding about who we are as a people, nations, modern-day Israel, that that scripture is very, very prophetic. But in saying, in saying that he's lost sheep of the house of Israel, on a, on a spiritual basis, that would have included the Jews at that time, and even today they don't understand these things either. But at least they know who they are. Most of the other tribes of Israel don't know, and, and although some appear to have some limited understanding of that. But he says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, uh, pointing out that shortly thereafter, Jesus Christ was to be coming behind them. But he also tells them, and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Uh, you read that, sounds pretty easy. Uh, but I would imagine that they had seen Christ do those very things. And one has to wonder, was there some uh, flipping of the stomach that said, I, I wonder if it will work for me. 
but they did it. They went out. He says, freely you have received, freely give. So they're given this special duty of going to the house of Israel. They're to go out to not to Gentiles, not to the Samaritans. They were go to Israel. In verse 23, points out here, he says, and when they persecute you, this is, because if you go from oh, verse 16 uh, on through a good part of the rest of the chapter, that uh, it, it, the chapter 10 of Matthew turns into a, a fair amount of pro- prophecy as well, because some of these things that he's talking about are discussed later in Matthew 24 even, and elsewhere as he approaches the end of, end of his ministry. Because they will persecute in this city. If they do that, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that is a, on a physical basis, that was probably a reality that Christ was coming behind them as they were going through the, the, the Jude, uh, Jewish cities. And He's coming behind them and may not have made it through all the cities before he got there. But this is especially true at the end of the age. That there appears to be, there's going to be some uh, reality that the, the Israel, modern day Israel, is not going to be saturated with God's people or the word. We had a warning that will go out. Some will accept. It will go out in all the world, but not necessarily to the point of saturation. So he gives, us, gives them this job. To do, we find that over in Matthew 28, verses uh, the last two verses, verses of that chapter, we we quote this real often about our mission. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. So then, after he's resurrected, he's been with them for a while. He says in verse 19, "Then go therefore and make disciples of all the nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So those things that Christ had taught them, that he had commanded them, they were to teach. And and he didn't teach anything but obedience to God's law. And they were to teach the exact same things. And then over at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 16, verse 15, now a different mission given in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And then here this verse, it's a different mission than what was given to them back in Matthew chapter 10. Because here he says to them, he said, go into the world everywhere, no limitation, not not. He didn't mention not going to the Samaritans, not going to Gentiles, but go into the world, all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. So a worldwide responsibility given to them. God expects us to participate in this job, this duty as well. We are modern-day disciples, if you will. We are to teach God's Word, everything that He commands us. We are to go and share that. And we are given a very special mission to do that. Now, how do we, how do we accomplish that? 
There's one Old Testament example that I think illustrates this. Let's turn back to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll, we'll read on through verse 9. And this is a time when Jehoshaphat is king over Judah. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and those with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hezazon, Tamar, which is in Gedai. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the eternal and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the eternal and from all the cities of Judah that came to seek the eternal. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the midst of the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Eternal before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel? And gave it to the descendants of Abraham, reminding him, your friend forever, someone to whom you made very big promises. And now they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now, Jehoshaphat was right. God had made some very huge promises to Abraham and to Israel if they would obey. And they had the temple here. And so Jehoshaphat calls a fast, and there's time for prayer. And he reminds God, you have given us your word that you will do these things. And now, we really need you to do it now. We need you to do, fulfill your promise now. Now, God, one way or the other, was going to take care of Israel and Judah. And we know the end result later on when he brings us all back together. But he had made that promise to a descendants if they would obey. And Jehoshaphat is bringing about reforms in Judah. He's trying to do what's right. And he claims God's promise that he would be there to deliver and protect them. He knew that God would do it. He said, are you not able to, to overcome everything? Your hand can't be withstood. So take your power now and use it in our behalf. That sort of illustrates the position we're in, brethren. Now, I realize this is a, primarily it's a great example of deliverance. But I think it's also a very good example of knowing 
what God's word says and then us making claim on those promises. That we return to him and ask him for the help to do the things that we need to do. Jehoshaphat was not taking anything for granted. He wanted God to fulfill that promise on that very specific occasion. And so he humbled himself and Judah. They prayed and they fasted. And pointed point out that for us, that we have this foundational responsibility to take, because of our calling, because of the blessings we have received, that we have this very special duty to see to it that God's work is done. And it's noted for us several times in the New Testament. Let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll go through a few, if you will, simple examples of this responsibility that we have. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And here a very short and simple verse. Verse 25. Paul, as he is closing this particular epistle to the church at Thessalonica, he's adding several things he's asking to do, encouraging them. But then in verse 25, he, he throws in this very short sentence. It says, Brethren, pray for us. Now, there are all kinds of examples we could give about what he might mean by that, things that need to be prayed about in order for God to take care of them. But he says, pray for us. What what kind of meaning might that have in that particular case, in the context? Let's turn back to chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, but we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Now, if you go back to Acts, I think it's chapter 17 of Acts, you find the account of Paul's first effort to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. And in, in, in that account, He's only there for a short time because his efforts just result very quickly in a lot of persecution, a lot of attention, and they even uh, looking for Paul and his, his, his companions. They end up arresting someone else, and they can't find too much about it. So Paul and his companions are sent away very quickly. So he has a very short period of time in which to preach the gospel, and then he has to leave. And the job isn't finished in Thessalonica. So he says here in verse 18, because they've had to leave so quickly, we've been taken away from you in presence. We're not there with you for right now. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. There must have been multiple efforts where Paul said, look, we need to go back to Thessalonica. We have unfinished business there of getting the gospel preached. We wanted to come time and again. But Satan 
hindered us. Now, in dealing with physical human beings, I can understand how Satan throws roadblocks in our paths because he does have great power himself. Now, the point is that Satan was allowed to hinder Paul's plans. He certainly doesn't mean that he had more power than God had. So later in this epistle, Paul says, pray for us. So there are lots of things that could be associated with that. But I have no doubt in my mind that one of the things he was thinking about is pray that we get get back to you. We can go back and finish preaching the gospel. So he could be praying about safe travel, decisions he had to make, uh, inspiration for what he was doing. We find over in Second Thessalonians chapter three, a little more specific in this particular request by Paul to the same church. He says, finally, brethren, in verse 1, he said, finally, brethren, pray for us. And now he gives more detail that the word of the, of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. So pray that I will be able to preach the gospel successfully. Because the Thessalonian church was a, uh, in general terms, was a good church. There were not lots of problems. So pray that the word of the, of the Lord may run, uh, sort of uh, talking about uh, comp- uh, comparing it to running a race, but it can run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. We can go elsewhere and accomplish the things there that we've accomplished with you. And in verse 2, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Paul was not taking it for granted that God was going to watch over him just because he was Paul. He realized the power of prayer, and he was asking the brethren in Thessalonica to pray for him, pray for him and his companions. As they went about doing this calling, fulfilling the calling they had been given, we need God there. And he, we know that if we pray about it, if we earnestly pray about it, then we're going to have a lot more peace and a lot more protection. We're going to be able to do the job for which we've been called. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, here as he closes this particular epistle to the Christians that are in Judea, he says, verse 18, the same words, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience, that we, he says, says, our conscience is clear, we've conducted ourselves honorably, Toward you and for all, for your welfare and for that matter, for all of mankind. In all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
He may have been in jail right there or just simply wanted to go back to Jerusalem, asking them to pray specifically about that so that if it is God's will, it would work out. He would understand that it was something that should be done, praying for the inspiration. Over in Colossians chapter 4, these are just to, to show you the different settings where this particular request is made and the impact it has on the work that they're doing. Colossians chapter 4. Verses 2 through 4. Verse 2 says, Continue earnestly in prayer. Not sleepy time prayer, but be earnest. Continue earnestly in prayer. Being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We can thank God at any given time for fulfilling the things we've requested. Day by day, the safety we have, the good news we have, we receive about the work, what may happen, the blessings that may happen with our family. But be vigilant in prayer with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. In this particular case, we know this is one of the what's called the prison epistles, one of the times that Paul was in prison, and he asks, Look, pray that there will be a way for me to preach, that I may make it manifest, may make it known, make it apparent as I ought to speak. So Paul was asking for, specifically for opportunity to preach, but also he's asking for inspiration on what to say, what's going to, how he's going to say it, the words he will use. We read examples in Acts where he was given wisdom to, to, to preach the gospel in such a way that people would listen. And that's what he's asking, to ask for which I am also in chains that I may speak, make it manifest as I ought to speak. Give me the right words to use. Say it the right way, at the right time, in order to be effective in preaching the gospel. He's asking for an open door to, to the word can be given. We ask about those things today. And I'll comment in a minute about what Mr. Ames mentioned, but in meetings, Mr. Weston has pointed out various things that he will say, we need to pray about that and ask for God to show us what his will is. So we ask for that in our prayers, and Paul is asking for it. Over in Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, first we'll read verses 20 through 22. Romans chapter 15, verse 20, and so I have made it my aim, my purpose, this is my mission, to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, not where someone else had already been there preaching the gospel. Lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. 
and those who have not heard shall understand. So go where the message has not been delivered yet. And for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to strengthen the faith and the belief of those that had been called of God were living in Rome. He said, for this reason, because this is my purpose, what I want to do also, though, have been much hindered from coming to you. It simply has not worked out. So then in verses 30 through 32, it says, Now I beg you, brethren, do any of, ever, any of us ever feel when we receive a letter from Mr. Weston or hear a minister talk about the various opportunities, do we get this sense uh, that we're being begged to do something? Well, here Paul just says, makes it very plain. He goes, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually calls upon the name of Christ to add a great deal of weight to his beseeching them. And through the love of the Spirit that they have, and he has, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. He's begging them to pray in his behalf. And in verse 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, there were, maybe there were still some of the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem that just had a hard time accepting Paul because of what he had done before he was converted. So he said what he wants to do is be accepted by them. And he wants to be protected from the others that don't believe. He's been given warning about what's going to happen when he goes back to Jerusalem. He doesn't understand yet how God is going to fulfill his his request about getting to Rome. And in verse 32 he says, also part of this prayer request that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Whereas I will be, I will receive benefit from sharing our lives together, our fellowship. And also I'm hope to be there and share these things that I know with you. I can strengthen your faith with the things that God has taught me. But he's begging them to pray for his well-being, for the work that's to be done. What? So let's try to make it a little, a little practical here. What can you and I pray about specifically in doing the work of God? Now, I would assume, probably a pretty safe assumption, that we pray for our leaders every single day. Mr. Weston Mr. Ames, Dr. Douglas Winnell, Mr. Wahavich at the top of the list because they are the ones that God is using to lead this work. And any particular other minister that we may know, whatever their activities are, we can pray for the ministry that God would lead them and would inspire them specifically, use them. I, in, in years past, uh, 
for what it's worth, I, I remember I in trying to learn how to pray when I was first called, not knowing what to pray about necessarily. I'd pray for Mr. Armstrong, and then I, there were 12 evangelists at that time. And I memorized all 12 evangelists. And so praying about them would take up a couple of minutes. <laughs> I kept you know, trying to be aware of how long I was praying, what I was praying about. We could pray about the leadership of our church, that Christ is working and using them. Regularly, what about the income of the work? Uh, my wife and I have talked in times, and, uh, and she said, well, sometimes, uh, I'm try not to embarrass her here. Uh, I, would you, why can't we just pray that God will move 10,000 people to give, I, think, I can't remember the dollar figure or whatever, a bunch of people to give $25. What a boost that would be. How much money would that be? God can do that. There are needs. We, we would like to do more. We'd like to be on more TV stations. We'd like to have a bigger subscription. We'd, we'd like to not have to call through the subscription list for those that aren't reading as much. It'd be nice to go out and like the plain truth was going on. Well over 7 million people at one time. We can pray about the income that will enable us to do, to do more. The telecast. Uh, we thought, uh, and I've seen a little more of it here in, in the few months I've been here and sitting in some of the meetings and, and uh, discussing various things with Mr. DeSimone, the challenges that he, he faces in the TV department. But what about the telecast? Uh, someone has to write a script. Now, uh, at least based on one of the presenters, it's give or take about 4,000 words. How many of us have ever composed a 4,000-word document? Not many of us, I dare say. It doesn't just roll off of the pen all that easily. Writing is hard work. Someone has to write the script, and then they submit that script to somebody else to review, <laughs> and it gets, I think it gets edited and reviewed and analyzed and for grammar and other things, syntax, whatever. I'm not one of those, but then it has to be recorded. It has to go present it, and I've not seen one of those actually done yet, So, uh, but I would imagine there's, a, there's some stopping and starting and picking up where they left off and whatever, and then it has to be, after it's recorded, it's got to be edited. And from word of mouth is that's not easily done. It's a tough job to edit the document. And then besides the filming of these, the presenters, then we can see all these graphics that show up, right? And the, uh, the scriptures are, are presented, and the charts are out there, and the various pictures are there. Somebody has to put all that in. That's work. And we want that telecast when it's all ready. We want it accepted at the stations where we send it. And sometimes that doesn't happen. After we go to all that effort, somebody says, oh, no, you have this little phrase in the middle of your presentation that, uh, no, that's, this is a no-no. We can ask God to help with all of that. A lot of work between composing the script, editing that, recording it, editing that, 
adding all the graphics. And now we have this opportunity that, that Mr. Ames mentioned on Unimass that the Spanish telecast will go out to all, well, many, I mean, say all, but a good number of the major metropolitan cities or locations across the United States. And while it's at 6 o'clock in the morning, what kind of response would we want to have? What would the, you know, if we got more than we were expecting and it was a challenge, would that be disappointing? Well, that's too big of a problem. No, no. That's the kind of problem we want to figure, we want to, want to solve. We're trying to get ahead of that. But this is a major opportunity. Mr. Weston has commented on multiple occasions that it appears that those of the Hispanic community do a lot more of communicating with one another and sharing these things. And the responses, even on, as we know, the number of people that send in comments about the telecast in Spanish, there are hundreds of thousands of them. So we have great hopes that this truly is an open door that we will be able to support. It, t- it costs money. But to figure out whether or not it's worth the investment, is the response adequate to justify the expense? If it is, but it's costly, we need more income. Ask God to make a way for it. What about TWPs? We hear about this, these, these presentations on a regular basis of ones we've had and the ones that are yet coming. And a brief prayer for every one of them is in order. That God would use that avenue to reach whatever few people might be in that audience. And even as in the message given recently by, uh, by Dr. Scott Winnell about praying for the responses in our TWPs. Hopefully we remember that particular message from him. We keep track of our, the responses to our letters that go out. Were there mid-year letters? Are there co-worker letters that go out to the co-workers and members? And Mr. Ames has mentioned on, on occasion, you know, if we would, if everyone would just give a small amount of money every time they receive a letter, that would be a boost in the income. We have two magazines. One, uh, one comes out each month, six of each for each year. Someone writes those articles. Pray about the articles being written. The government inspire the articles and go in the magazines. Those articles will be such that someone will respond and someone will change their lives because of what's written there. The same with our booklets. Ideas for, in general, for other ways to preach the gospel, to reach the, get the message out. Just to spontaneously inspire an idea. God can do that as well. What TV stations we're on. What kind of choices are made there. What kind of contracts are analyzed. And uh, I know that Mr. Wakefield would appreciate good, easy contracts. (laughs) Those things matter. Every detail matters. I dare say there's more things to pray about, brethren, for doing God's work than you and I have time in any given day to do all of it. And if we write down some sort of list, we keep track of the various items, and along with them we have prayer requests go out for people who are sick, people that are hurting, 
asking for God to heal them. If not heal them, at least relieve them of the pain that they're enduring. I dare say there are more things, as I said, to pray about than we have time in any given day to get it all done. But over days, over a few days, over a week, we can pray about those things. That's the job you and I have. There are lots of things we can do to serve locally, to help with the work. A good number of you are actually employed in the work, and being here now for three months or so, you see the difference because sometimes it's, it's, you go to work, and it just, it's what we do every day. It's our work. But it can't be done casually. Everything we do every day is not unimportant. It's not just ho-hum work. It's part of preaching the gospel and doing the work to the world. We can pray about even our own individual effectiveness for those of us that are employed by the church. And those of you that aren't can pray that God will use us effectively. All these things matter. Now I'd like to turn over to a familiar verse and analyze this a little bit for us. Let's turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 34. Now, you may, have, you may have this one memorized because you read it at least once a week if you read the update, if you, unless, you, unless we've gotten too used to it being there. Verse 34 of Matthew, or John chapter 4 says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We use that in our header for the World Ahead update that comes out every week. That's sort of a one-line mission statement for us. We have a seven-fold commission that Mr. Dr. Dr. Meredith inspired. We read this. This is this is really what our our foundation is to do the work. We have to take care of our own individual spiritual lives, but. We want to be the kinds of Christians that God can use to do this, to do his work. Now, let's start the context of this. I want to go a little bit, go through a little bit of what it says here in John chapter 4. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John... So they figured out that, well, Jesus was more of a problem than John the Baptist, is what he's saying. That, says, though Jesus himself did not actually baptize, but his disciples did. So when they figured that out, then he said, he, referring to Christ, left Judea and departed again to Galilee, which is a fair distance north. But to do that, in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. And Samaria, depending on which part of it is, in general, Samaria is about halfway between Jerusalem and Galilee. And so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied, tired, thirsty, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. 
And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Uh, logical request. He's thirsty and tired. Now he's alone because in verse 8 tells us here that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So, you know, the situation here is he's in Samaria and he bothers to ask this Samaritan woman for a drink of water and the disciples are gone. Now in the preceding verses from verse 9 all the way down through verse 26, uh, Christ explains to her that he could give her living water. She didn't understand what that meant, but get living water leading to eternal life. Let's look at it here in verse, verse 10. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, you even knew to whom you were speaking You really could take advantage of a very special opportunity and have living water. Verse 13, and whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Talking about the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And... That's a real potion. <laughs> Give some water that will lead to eternal life. So he tells her this very special situation right here. And through his words, through the rest of this chapter, again down to verse 26, what he shares with her enough information that convinces her he's a prophet. And then in verse 26, he actually identifies himself to her. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, referring back to verse 25, where she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. Now, the Samaritans had a corrupted religion. They had perhaps whatever by osmosis or by proximity absorbed some of what was there in, uh, for the Jews, but they had brought with them the Babylonian idolatrous traditions. And it was a corrupted religion, but obviously here you, she says, I know about the Messiah. So there's some, some religious background to this lady. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And so he says, but that's me. Now elsewhere we find Christ saying, don't tell anybody what I've done because I don't want them to, you know, it's, it's, I'm not ready yet for everybody to understand. But here he, in reality, there's no way she is going to stop him from filling from fulfilling his, his, his responsibility as the Son of God and becoming the Savior of mankind. So he tells her, and then they, uh, she goes back and talks to the men. Uh, we notice here it says here that, uh, verse 28, she went her way into the city and said to the men, that's a, a general term, uh, why the men would listen to her, uh, it's a question in my mind. Perhaps they were some of the leaders of the community. Perhaps she had some some standing in the community that uh, would give her some credence. Whatever it was, they, they, they did listen to her. And she goes back to, to them and talks to them and tells, tells them what Christ told her. And the way he puts it, he goes, come see this man in verse 29, who told me, all things that I ever I, that I ever did, 
could this be the Christ? So there are some details missing here. We didn't, we don't, not privy to all of the things that Christ said to her. But he said enough that she began to realize this man knows more about me than anybody else alive, perhaps. He told me all the things ever I did. Could this be the Messiah? And that would, if, they had, if she had any credibility at all, that would certainly get their attention. And in verse 30 then, then they went out of the city and came to him. They thought, we need to check this out ourselves. Maybe this is too good to be true. This is some fantasy. We better go check this out. So they want to come and see for themselves. Now, while she's gone, if you notice it in the scriptures we didn't read, that when the disciples have come back with the food, they're surprised that he's talking to this this lady. Now, again, if the scripture says that, that there were Samaritans didn't have any, or Jews had no contact with the Samaritans, and that very likely on any any personal social basis. But on a business basis, they were going into the city to buy some food. They were just transacting some business, not getting involved in in the the uh, Samaritan way or the Samaritan community. So the disciples come back. She's gone, and they urge Christ to uh, to take something to eat. And he then gives us some very important scriptures. Again, he goes here, verse that says, uh, uh, verse 32, I have food to eat which you do not know. And they, they're puzzled by that. And he tells them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The calling I have, the mission I've been given, my being the Son of God, the work I have to do right now is more important than a meal. I've got food you don't even know about. I've got strength. Well, I'll receive strength from some other source. And what energizes me is doing God's work. Doing the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, I'm on... They would use this phrase, I'm on a mission. I'm here to do a job. And nothing's going to stand in my way of doing that. I'm not going to be distracted. Then he says, verse 35, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? So that's somewhere during the growing season. Harvest is not yet. So behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. What, what is Christ telling them there? He says, I've got a job to do. And you need to understand you now are part of that job. I've called you up in, to include you in this mission. And even though if you think it out on a physical basis that the, 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 the crop harvest is yet four months from now, just look up. What would they look up and see? They'd be looking up and seeing these Samaritans coming out to find out if there's any legitimate word here from this lady about this man who's told her everything. And the harvest is white. 
ready for harvest, people to be given understanding, people to be taught. Now, this is a, there are Samaritans. Uh, they did not yet understand they were to go to the world. They didn't understand the salvation would go from the Jews to the Gentiles to all the other nations. But there's a hint right here saying, look, there's a, there are people to be taught. They're coming out. Christ used this occasion to tell the disciples about the huge task that they are going to be given and the responsibility of doing so. Go on down here. Then he says in verses 36 through 38, he makes some interesting comments. So there's a harvest, and there's a spiritual harvest is his ultimate explanation here. And he who reaps receives wages. In other words, you go out literally and harvest a crop, yeah, you get paid for it. And you gather fruit for eternal life. So now he's talking about far more than a physical harvest of some grain. He's saying here that if who reaps receives wages. There's reward to be given for the work you've been called to do. And if you gather this fruit, it is for ultimately the gift of eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So someone sows, they've been told to harvest. So what are the, who, who's the, who are the ones that sowed what they're supposed to be harvesting? For in this, the saying is true, one sows. And another reaps. And at the end of the growing season, everybody's happy. Have celebration. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. In other words, there's been a work ongoing before now. And your job will be to go out and not only add to that work, but also to reap some of the harvest of the work that's been done. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, patriarchs, prophets, servants of God from the very beginning of mankind, from perhaps Abel on down. A lot of work had been done. The truth was alive somewhere in the world. And he gets it, and you have entered into their labors. You're now being added to the workforce. We, brethren, have been added to the workforce. We've been called of God and turned over to Jesus Christ to develop, to grow spiritually, to change, but also to be servants and workers so that the work is accomplished, the gospel is preached. We are not here by accident. What we do with our calling should not be accident, should be with great purpose. We have a chance to gather fruit for eternal life, and it's obviously a gift we can't earn. We earn reward in God's kingdom. We can't earn eternal life. That is a gift. But once we're given that, and the resurrection is a reality, we can, in fact, rejoice with all of those that have gone before us. That's what he's telling us. You have entered into their labors. Verses 36 through 38 really gives us an explanation of an overriding responsibility that you and I have in order to 
do God's, do God's work and serve him. Before we move on to this, I'd like to do something interesting here, I think. I'd like to read verses 37 and 36 in reverse order. Think about it from this point of view. And when is this saying is true? One sows and another reaps. Many have sowed before us. Good many. And now we are part of that workforce, and but we also have a chance to reap. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. God is asking us, ordering us, commanding us to do the work so that we can share in that fruit of eternal life, so that we can, in fact, rejoice with those that have gone before. What's stated there is similar to what we find over in the book of Hebrews. Let's turn back to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 13 and 14. He's made mention of a couple of people prior to, prior to this. But he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off or assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. By doing the work of God, by making the sacrifices of our time, our lives, our energies, even our financial and physical resources, whatever they may be, we're declaring we want a different homeland. We realize this is not the end all in this life. And then in verses 39 and 40, in all these, in all these, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Moses, Joshua, right on down the line. And if you go through the intervening verses, uh, some additional names and even some that aren't named. But what they did is outlined. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. All of those that sowed before us are waiting for the promise. God having provided something better for us. We're now part of that workforce and we're going to reap the same blessings and the same gift. Having provided for some, something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. We can in fact rejoice with them. The gift of eternal life and the blessings we enjoy depend far more than just obedience to God's law. We have a mission. A set of laws tells us how to live, but our calling demands labor, demands harvesting, demands a reaping, and demands a preaching of the gospel. You and I have a very special opportunity and a special responsibility to preach the gospel and a warning message. We call it the Ezekiel warning and the, that and the, the preaching the gospel really go hand in hand. Part of the same duty and the same responsibility. Our service, our contributions, whatever they may be, are still made valuable 
and helped and supported by our prayers. If we pray that God will guide all of these things associated with his work, then we're doing what we've been called to do, especially our prayers, our fervent, earnest prayers are part of doing God's work that he will use us just as Christ said his job or his will was to finish the work. Then we should be praying about that very same thing, that what we consider food, spiritual food, is to do the will of him that called us, and that is to finish the work. The question is not whether or not the kingdom will come or whether or not there will be peace on earth. We know that will happen. The only question we really have is whether or not you and I will surrender our lives completely so that we all share in the mission of preaching the gospel to the world. Thank you.